0: Play for free at Luckylandslots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary, void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Today's show is brought to you by our Patreon supporters, including our Commodore class. That's Commodore's Obvious, Blood Groove, Torso and Pinches, Ironside, MD, Jacob, Griffin, Scuttlebutt, Matt. Roger the Jolly, Hartman, Gingrich, Lisa, Kevin, Brock, Clan Roland, Big Beard, Willie P., Brian, Lancelot, Schmarls, Madame Anita, Buggy the Clown, Leslie the Spice Chonger, Jonathan, the Admiral Binbo, Misfit, Chairboat, Cannon Monkey, Ash, Axios, Gunsway Sally, Pitlock, James, Brock, Four-Eyed Sloth, Artemis Killmeister, The Sextant, Randy Savage, Jack of the South Seas, Lost Again, The Navigator, Governor Roop, Gin Soaked Jim, Workman, Rum Runner, Skipper, Sawbones, Scarlet Dawn, Hefe, Bull, Vertigon, Rum gut, and bootstraps Bailey. Hello. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. Today, we're going to return to the Pirates of the Indian Ocean. And we've got a few different pirates to look at, but we're going to begin on the deck of the Adventure Galley. When we last left, Captain William Kidd, he had just captured a very, very rich prize. The Queda Merchant. Captain Kidd and his crew captured the Quita merchant without a single shot fired, with really no resistance at all. See, the sailors on board were all either Indian or European. Mostly French for the Europeans, but all of the cargo was owned by 20-odd Armenian merchants who were on board. The Indians and the Europeans were all hired hands. They didn't care about the cargo, but it was valuable. There were spices and silks and calico and opium. But really, only two men on board knew just how rich a prize the Quida merchant really was. The first of these was the Quida merchant's captain, whom Captain Kidd had yet to meet. The second was Captain Kidd himself. See, he had just found an iron-bound chest filled with gold and diamonds and rubies, silver pearls, emeralds, and some very fine jewelry. It was the kind of treasure chest that centuries of myth and legend and storytelling and later on Hollywood would tell us that pirates found all the time, but in reality they almost never found that kind of treasure, at least not all at once. But here was Captain Kidd, sifting through a chest filled with almost unimaginable amounts of plunder and he chose not to tell anyone. This is episode 268, A Great Noise. The men of the Adventure Galley began to celebrate their success while they should have still been busy looting the Quida merchant. Whenever someone came upon a cache of wine or rum or, you know, food, they began to partake. Before long, everyone had stopped working completely, and they got down to the business of getting really drunk but it's also important to remember here that the real pirates among Captain Kidd's crew were not there. Back in November, they'd captured a ship called the Ruparel, which they renamed November, and then all of the real pirates in Captain Kidd's crew went off on that ship. They were nearby, but not present when Adventure Galley encountered the Queda merchant, and that Distinction is going to matter when the treatment of the people on board the Quida merchant will come up in court. But while the men on board were all indulging in food and drink, Captain Kidd received some troubling news. The old Frenchman who had presented him with the Quida merchant's French passport informed him that he, the Frenchman, wasn't actually the captain, as he may have let on. No, the captain was an Englishman. His name was John Wright. And there are some accounts that call John Wright the pilot, or maybe the sailing master of the ship, which is a problem all throughout the story of Captain Kidd, makes it a difficult story to tell. We have so many different conflicting testimonies, and so many people that were lying right here at sea in January 1698, that it's hard to tell what the truth really is. That's why I've been kind of dancing around the question of whether or not Captain Kidd really was a pirate. Madam Anita wrote me to ask if I really was leaning toward Captain Kidd being a pirate, as I kind of insinuated I might. It's a good question, and she had some excellent points, and, you know, I've been cagey about that question on purpose. But today, I'm ready to answer it. Almost conclusively. Captain William Kidd, based upon everything he had done on this voyage thus far, had not committed any actual piracy. I don't think he was a pirate. I think he was a murderer. I think he was a bastard who wasn't living up to the contract he had signed with his men. I think he was a bad sailor and a bad captain. He was a bad boss. And I think that Captain Kidd was, right before he found the Queda merchant, I think he was desperate enough to have considered turning pirate. You know, if it had been an English ship, I'm not sure he would have said no at that point. But Captain Kidd was not a pirate. At least, not on purpose. See, there were two big pieces of information that Captain Kidd did not have here in January 1698 that probably would have changed the decisions he made that day. The first of these, and this is the really big news in terms of world events, but lesser news in regard to Captain Kidd, the Nine Years' War was over. It had been over for about three months by this point. So Captain Kidd's commission to hunt the French was technically invalid. So capturing this ship with a French passport, technically kind of piracy. But privateers usually get some leeway at the end of a war so everybody can learn what's going on. I don't think that would have sunk him. But the second bit of news that had Kidd known would have been a much bigger deal was that some of the cargo below decks on the Quida Merchant, belonged to the Grand Mughal Aurangzeb. Now, I kind of hinted at some of this when we first introduced the Quida Merchant, but there was something clandestine about this ship, and I think that it involved dealings between the three largest Muslim powers in the world. If you had a chest full of rubies and diamonds and silver and gold it would almost always have been carried on board a capital ship, you know, a large warship in a convoy with a bunch of other large warships. The kind of fleet that nobody would consider attacking, and that was well insured in case one of the ships sank. Those were the kind of fleets that carried payroll and taxes and tribute to foreign leaders. They had Dozens of big guns and hundreds of soldiers, and if you, as a private individual, had a chest full of rubies and gold and silver that you needed to send, you would almost always do so on board one of these big ships. So why would anyone send a chest as full of riches as the one that Captain Kidd had found? Why would they send it on a tiny, innocuous little Armenian ship like the Quida merchant?' The only reason I can think of, the only reason I can imagine, is that someone didn't want someone else to know about all of that money. I don't have any hard evidence, but it looks to me that someone high up in the Mughal court was sending a bunch of money to someone probably in the Ottoman court, and that they were doing it in secret probably because of all of the tensions currently at play with Safavid Persia. Now, I can't prove anything here, but it would go a long way to explaining why everything that's about to happen is about to happen. But of course, Kidd knew nothing about any of that. He was aware, though, that he was going to have to answer for everything that had just happened. Nearly everyone who writes about this episode says something along the lines of, And Captain Kidd then tucked the most important treasure he had in his possession into his waistcoat. The passports proving that this was a French ship. As we mentioned, since the war was over, this wouldn't be immediate absolution, but it would be evidence that he at least believed it to be so. Nonetheless, Captain Kidd was apprehensive about all of this. That English captain gave him real pause. So Captain Kidd assembled the crew and informed them that, quote, the taking of this ship will make a great noise in England, end quote. For once, Captain Kidd was 100% right. Now, it looks to me like Captain Kidd was trying to deal with this situation now, when the most reasonable men under his command were around. But while the crew was assembled... The lookouts on board spotted the November approaching. That ship was full of less scrupulous, less loyal men. And Captain Kidd, once they arrived, was forced to call a full official council of the crew. Captain Kidd, and this furthers the argument that he was not here for any kind of piracy, Captain Kidd argued that the crew should sell the Quetta merchant back to the Armenians. One young man in the crew, in his later testimony, would say that Captain Kidd suggested they sell the ship back for one piece of eight. Sounds a bit like hyperbole to me, but one of the Armenians did offer the privateers £20,000 sterling. Which is, you know, pretty good. That would equal about £130 for each crew member. In modern money, that would translate to about £16,000 for a single day of labor with no violence done, not too shabby. But of course it had been months of fruitless searching, not just one single day. The crew wanted more. They wanted the full amount of what everything on board the ship and even the ship itself was worth. Of course, they were never, ever going to get that. Captain Kidd tried to explain to them that they weren't just going to be able to sail this ship up the Thames, you know. They weren't going to be greeted as heroes upon their return to England, and they absolutely wouldn't get all the money for this prize. He asked them, quote, Where will you take this ship, and where will you take the cargo? End quote. Which is a good question. They didn't have a lot of options. This might not have been piracy, or at least they might not have known it was piracy, but they were going to have to behave like pirates to sell it. They were going to sail to St. Mary's Island, and that was going to be a long, hard, and arduous voyage. The winds were blowing east while they needed to sail west, and the adventure galley, not In good shape already, it was going to begin to leak badly. But Captain Kidd was, in a few months' time, going to arrive at St. Mary's Island. Before Captain Kidd arrives at St. Mary's Island, we should look at what was happening at Madagascar. And to do that, we're going to need to shift gears here to turn our eyes away from Captain Kidd to the Pirates of Libertalia, all of whom we've met before, but who we need to catch up with. First, I'd like to talk about Captains John Ireland. Richard Bobbington, and Joseph Skinner of the pirate ship Charming Mary. The voyage of the Charming Mary in 1697 specifically is complicated. It's shrouded in a lot of mystery and contradictions. One source suggests that the Charming Mary may have sailed for Barbados in 1697, but I don't think that's true. I think that that source is confusing the Charming Mary, formerly under a Captain Richard Glover, with the Amity, which was currently under Captain Richard Glover, the same guy. He arrived in Barbados in 1697. You will recall that a bunch of the pirates who sailed with Thomas II and Henry Every back in 1695, that they were aboard the Amity in St. Augustine Bay, at the beginning of 1697. But Adam Baldridge, the merchant who established a pirate trading post at St. Mary's Island, he sent those pirates word that the Charming Mary had arrived in his harbor. So the captain of the Amity, the guy who took over after Thomas II died, John Ireland, he set sail and met the Charming Mary at sea. And he took command of the Charming Mary, probably by threat of violence, but I don't think actually with violence. Because he gave the Amity over to Richard Glover and his men. They just needed a better ship, and they got one in the Charming Mary, and Richard Glover sailed back to Barbados and the Amity. But when the pirates of St. Augustine Bay took the Charming Mary, they found it a good time to hold a council. They were going to vote in new officers for their new ship. Richard Bobbington was elected the captain of Charming Mary, while John Ireland was demoted to sailing master. Now, we don't need to worry much about Richard Bobbington. He's only going to be captain for a couple of months, and then he's going to disappear in Persia. A Joseph Skinner was going to take over his post as captain of the Charming Mary, and it's about that time that we find the ship at or around St. Mary's in the summer of 1697. They were hanging around Adam Baldridge's trading post, but they weren't alone there. There were a lot of other pirates and pirate-adjacent types in the region. John Hoare was also in the region aboard his ship the John and Rebecca. He was floating between St. Mary's and the French outpost at Reunion Island. You'll remember the John and Rebecca as the ship that, a few years earlier, before they left the West Indies, stopped off at Martinique, where they took on a few men who had escaped slavery, including a man named Abraham Samuel, who by this point was serving as the quartermaster of John and Rebecca. You should also remember John Hoare and his ship as one of the two that tried to ransom a pair of vessels in the Gulf of Aden, The pirates who said to the authorities, We acknowledge no country, having sold our own, and as we are sure to be hanged if taken, we shall have no scruple in murdering and destroying if our demands are not granted. The other captain in that engagement was Dirk Chivers, who was now in command of the Soldado, which was also hanging around Madagascar in 1697. So we've got three moderately large pirate ships in the region, the Charming Mary, John and Rebecca, and the Soldado. Those were the main pirates in the area, but there were a bunch of those pirate-adjacent types. Most of those were merchants, and that's the word that's most commonly used, merchant. You'll also hear them called traders, or sometimes pirate traders, which is accurate, but not the entire story. These were sailors with commissions from Governor Benjamin Fletcher of New York, the sailors that worked for Frederick Phillips, one of the richest men in New York, and did most of their business with Adam Baldridge at St. Mary's. Their voyages would take them from Madagascar to Barbados and then on to Nassau on New Providence Island, From the Bahamas, they would stop in Carolina, and finally in New York City. In short, these were the sailors who plied the pirate round. Now, none of these guys were exactly pirates at this point, but they were an integral part of that world. Take one of the more famous pirate traders active in the region, Giles Shelley, the captain of the six-gun merchant brig Nassau. From New York, he would sail over to Madeira, where he would stock up on wine at about six pounds a cask. From there, he would sail all the way down to Madagascar, where he would sell it at about a hundred pounds a cask. The pirates had income to burn, and that wine made him a very popular pirate merchant. With his holds empty and his purse full, he would stock up on all manner of goods captured by pirates, sold to Adam Baldridge, and then sold on to him. We're talking about spices and silks, exotic dyes, calico, all other manner of goods that came from the East. These goods were difficult to come by in the colonial world, but they made him very popular in places like Nassau, Charleston, New York, all of those Other stops on the pirate round. Another prominent merchant trader was John Thurber, a.k.a. John Churcher. He's a pirate merchant that we've talked about before. He began his career as a pirate under John Coxon on the First Pacific Adventure. And he's probably most famous for an event that may or may not have actually happened back in 1685. On his way to New York from Madagascar, his ship was damaged and he had to put in at Charleston. There, he traded a bag of Malagasy rice to South Carolina pioneer Henry Woodward, which grew really, really well in South Carolina and became the prime export of the Southern Carolina colony. Here in the late 1690s, he was one of the most prolific merchants on the pirate round. Adam Baldridge marked two times that John Thurber stopped at his trading post. On one of these stops, Baldridge recorded, quote, August 7th, 1693, arrived the ship Charles, John Churcher Master, from New York, Mr. Fred Phillips' owner. That's Frederick Phillips, the richest man in New York, who was responsible for most of this pirate-round activity— he then goes on to list all of the things that Churcher brought him. Forty-four pairs of shoes, six dozen stockings, three dozen shirts and breeches, twelve hats, some carpenter's tools, five barrels of rum, four quarter casks of Madeira wine, ten cases of spirits, two stills, two grindstones, tools, rum, oil, clothes, seeds, and books. There's a part of me that reads a passage like that and finds it to be enticing. You know, there aren't really a lot of times and places that I'd like to go back and live in history. They didn't have air conditioning in the past. Plus, they were always theocratic military dictatorships no matter where you lived. But when I read something like that about a place like Madagascar in the late 1690s, can't you imagine... Being a part-time pirate, living in a beautiful tropical paradise, there's nowhere else in the world quite like Madagascar. Imagine kicking back on that beach when a ship arrives carrying rum, wine, spirits, books, and all of the tools needed to till the soil. And of course you've got a beautiful Malagasy wife with fresh fruit, maybe a Spanish guitar somewhere in the distance, and A few hundred like-minded, freedom-loving, democratic rebels. It sounds quite a bit like paradise. That is the dream that writers like Captain Charles Johnson would dub the Pirate Haven at Libertalia. But that idea of Libertalia was utopia. And like utopia, it was a fiction because while the rum cocktails made with fresh fruit and all of the delicious food, tropical paradise, all of that does sound pretty great, the truth of Libertalia was not filled with liberty. Adam Baldridge concludes that entry in his ledger, quote, I returned for the said goods 1,100 pieces of eight, thirty-four slaves, and 15 head of cattle. He set sail from St. Mary's after having sold part of his cargo to the white men upon Madagascar to Mauritius to take in slaves. Slavery was a daily reality for the people of Madagascar. There were those who were being enslaved, those who were doing the kidnapping and capturing, and those who were doing the trading of human beings. For all, the dream of liberty that Libertalia is supposed to represent, the purpose of the trading post on St. Mary's Island... You know, sure, Adam Baldridge made money on spices and other goods stolen by pirates, but it was the trade in human beings that made him rich. That's why Frederick Phillips and the governor of New York built this clandestine little pirate operation. It wasn't about piracy. It was about circumventing the Royal Africa Company and trading in human lives. The reason that those pirate merchants stopped in Barbados and Nassau and Charleston was to sell enslaved labor to the plantations in Barbados and Nassau and Charleston. And for almost a decade now, this plot had worked pretty well and made a lot of people a lot of money. But it was all about to come to an end. See, for years now, the authorities in Whitehall and the Parliament, back in England, well, they blew the pirate menace on Madagascar way out of proportion. They imagined the fortress at St. Mary's as much more imposing than it really was. They imagined the forces under the command of the pirates much more extensive than they were. And during the Nine Years' War, everyone assumed, whether they were English or Portuguese or Dutch or French, everyone assumed that these pirates were really secret agents in the employ of their enemies. I read a passage somewhere, but I can't find it to credit the author. But the passage read something to the effect of, The fort at St. Mary's would grow larger the farther away you got so no one had ever really done anything about the pirate menace on Madagascar. But an event was about to take place that would destroy that image of a powerful pirate armada with a castle and tens of thousands of sailors. This was not going to be an attack from foreign powers. That would come, but later. First, Libertalia, the utopia on Madagascar, was going to be threatened by local powers. There were two factions on Madagascar. Those Malagasy who sided with the pirates and engaged in the capture and trade of human beings and everyone else. And everyone else, the people of Madagascar, were about to rise up and put an end to the pirates of the round. I'd like to thank everybody for listening. I'd like to thank everybody who has helped to support the show. All of our patrons on Patreon, everybody who has left us ratings and reviews, and everybody who has recommended this show. Without all of you, this wouldn't be possible. Thank you. The Pirate History Podcast is a member of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. If you'd like to check out some of their other fine shows, like the Explorers Podcast, you can do so at airwavemedia.com. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you haven't checked them out yet, you absolutely should do so. You can find them at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G.com.au. After you're done over there, you can check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com. As always, and most importantly, thank you for listening.